lot of jobs have been lost, so a lot of people, you know, picking up the pace with gold. Question. What is it that everybody has and some pirates and thieves try to take? The booty. Hey, welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm Hannah Jaffe-Walt in Seattle. And I'm David Kestenbaum in Washington, D.C., our nation's capital. That was Adam Schiffer. He's a gold prospector from California. You just heard at the top of the podcast. Today, we are going to report on something that no one else in the media is covering. I just, I can't believe it. It's being completely ignored. Pirates. (laughs) Yeah, well, we, like the rest of you out there, have been watching those endless video loops of ships and hearing lots about hostages, and we've heard way too many pirate jokes. But we feel like there are actually still some questions here, planet money-like questions, such as, how does the pirate economy work? Like, what are the incentives at play for the pirates, for the ship owners who are negotiating them? So, Hannah, you, you have some answers for us. I give it a try, yes. That's coming up. But first, our planet money indicator. And that is $4 trillion. So that is the new International Monetary Fund's projection for the total losses of all those toxic assets if you add up from 2007 going forward to 2010. So two-thirds of that $4 trillion, they say, those losses will fall on banks. Um, also, there are other people losing money, too, you know, insurance funds, pension funds. The IMF says that banks around the world right now may have written down something like a third of those losses so far. So more pain to come, man. All right, David, so you and I, we've been talking a lot recently on the phone, right? And I have to say, I'm starting to get this picture of your fancy pants DC life over there. You're always running off to Capitol Hill, and then you're stopping by the IMF. And, you know, when we were reporting on the FDIC, you just walked over. It's sort of, you know, it feels like you're right in the middle there. I picture you playing with the White House dog, right? Hanging out with the Supreme Court justices. Oh, yeah, it's very, very glamorous. Um, I did actually play basketball a couple times in the Supreme Court. Yeah, I've heard they have a basketball court in there. They do. It's called the highest court in the land. But look, I have to say, you know, the best theater sometimes is in Congress. And yesterday I was in that awkward position of, you know, when you get invited to two parties? Yeah, it happens to me all the time, actually. Yeah, or more probably for you, right? Well, um, so we had so what Simon Johnson, who we have on the show a lot, was in one hearing talking about how to handle the banks that grow too big to fail. But at the same time, there was also a hearing with Treasury Secretary Tim Geithner. And you went to the Geithner party. Ouch. Sorry, Simon. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I emailed Simon saying sorry. But um, so I'm actually going to play one piece of tape from this hearing. But first, I got to set the scene for you. So this is before the congressional oversight panel. And it's headed by Elizabeth Warren. She's a lawyer at Harvard. A lot of you probably know her. She's been kind of giving giving voice to a lot of the public outrage and just total frustration out there in the public over the bailouts. So Geithner walks in, and I don't know, there are like a dozen photographers with cameras right in his face, and the sound of all those shutters going, it's like the loudest rainstorm you've ever heard. And he takes his seat, and he's alone uh, at this, you know, witness desk in the center. And right behind him, you may have seen this in some of the photos, these women, uh, these protesters are dressed in pink, 
and you see them a lot on Capitol Hill. They're part of some, uh, I think it's called Code Pink, and they're usually protesting the war in Iraq. But they were here holding signs saying, give me my money back. And they're saying things. They're not sort of full voice, but they're talking. And it's, it's, I don't know, it's just got to be really distracting for them. Not fun to be Timothy Geithner these days. It's not. And, and, you know, my take on him is that he believes what he's doing is right. And, you know, he, he... I get the sense he feels frustrated that he and Treasury haven't been able to explain uh, what they're doing better or why they think it's right more convincingly. So the, the hearing begins, and if you think of it like a party, you know the conversation is uh, is is not so good. Everyone's kind of talking past each other. The panel is is posturing partly, and they're also asking some good questions. But Geithner, he responds to the questions politely, but, you know, often he's not very specific. He'll say, like, look, that's a complicated issue. You know, thank you for asking. We're trying to strike a balance. But then then there was this exchange. So this is Damon Silvers, who's on the panel. He's a union lawyer with the AFL-CIO, and he puts up a chart. And it's about the government's plan to work with uh, private investors, you know, to buy up the toxic assets from banks. And Damon Silver says something we've pointed out here, which is that investors are going to get a big part of the profits if things go well. But if things don't go well, the taxpayer could bear most of the losses. But the way he laid out the numbers wasn't quite right. And Geithner, who up to this point had been staying out of really trying to explain anything in detail, he decided it was time to dive in. So you're going to first hear from Damon Silver's. Now, I just don't get it, Mr. Secretary, how this represents protecting the taxpayer. And I would like you to explain why it does. Uh, uh, so this is an important question. And uh, the virtue of these programs is they're going to come with a level of transparency to allow everybody to evaluate what the economics are for the investor in the government. And as you see the terms of these things refined in public, you'll have a better basis for making that assessment. Now, very important to underscore again, you can't measure the returns to the taxpayer uh, through this narrow prism. It doesn't qu- provide a full measure of it, and you're counting as capital, if I, I, I haven't had a chance to look at these carefully, you're counting as capital in your left-hand panels of your charts uh, the financing the government's providing at a price against a bunch of collateral with haircuts against that collateral. And that is not capital in the same sense that you're looking at the – that is, lend, I, that is, that is financing against collateral right, but can I stop you at there? a price, yes. What, what, what I'm measuring here is money at risk, right? If it turns out but that the, the assets the, that – the, Mr. Secretary, right. if it turns out that the assets that these partnerships buy are not worth the price paid, not, not because of anything terrible but because of just risk, right? And if, it, and if we eat through the equity in those partnerships, is it not the case that the FDIC and the Fed are on the hook? Absolutely. This is secured lending against collateral at an interest rate with pricing designed to help protect the Fed and the FDIC from that risk. But what I'm saying is you're equating capital, which is fully at risk, with financing against collateral. Now, really the critical thing, as you know from our previous conversations, Mm -hmm. is compared to what? And the alternative programs that many have advocated for dealing with these legacy assets – it's important. Let me finish this. Would have the government taking on all the risk, providing taking on all the risk and mispricing the, the, the assets, taking all the downside risk and having all that protection. Now they would get in return all the potential upside in this case, but that trade-off is a bad trade-off for the government because the government is highly unlikely to be in a position to be able to get the valuation right and will be at great risk right. for overpaying for those assets then and having stop, a much worse me, risk reward. Let me stop you right there. What I don't get 
and I practice law and you've been in banking. Is a deal actually, where I, just for just a, I've never actually been in banking. I've only been in no, public it, service. Well, a long time ago. <laughs> yeah. a, a long never, time. Never, actually never. Investment uh, banking, I meant. Never investment banking. Uh, um, spent well, my entire life in public service <laughs> in the Treasury uh, and at the Well, Federal all right. Very well, then. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, like, actually became a little human exchange right there. It did. And what I, what I really liked, I mean, you sort of start falling asleep in the middle of these things, and then you'll wake up when something like this happens. You know, what I really like is that you get a sense for the frustration on, the bo- on both sides of things. And, you know, some of these issues are just so complex. These settings are, you know, they're, just, they're not a great forum. Um, so let me just clarify one thing that Geithner was saying there. When he says compared to what, when he says this is better because compared to what, he, he's saying that the original plan, for instance, under Paulson, where the government was just going to buy up the toxic stuff directly, that would have exposed the taxpayers to 100% of the risk. And he says it's also, that also would have been really bad for the taxpayer because the government has no idea how to figure out how to how to price these things, would not do a good job. So he's saying you know, there was a much greater chance there of getting ripped off. So this way, private investors are putting up what could be billions of dollars, and they have a stake in getting it right. They have, as they say, skin in the game. David, can I just point out here, I mean, that was that was great. Uh, it was really great to hear from the hearing, and I'm glad you were there, and that's helpful what you explained there. <laughs> but I, I do just need to say here that to set up that piece of tape, that was like a two-minute piece of tape, you know, it, it took you six or seven minutes or something, you know, to talk about it before and then to explain it afterwards. That's Planet Money. We get down into the details. You know, I could have played you the whole 90 minutes of the hearing. (laughs) And I'm not saying that's wrong. I think that's great. Um, So it sort of leads into this next thing that we're going to talk about, this pirate story. I feel like the networks, they've just jumped all over the piracy thing. And because sort of like they're so psyched to have something to report about that is just simple. You know, there's drama, but there are no complex instruments to explain. Yeah, like no derivatives, no collateralized debt obligations. Right. It's like, thank goodness, a story that is clear that we can just report. Um, But, you know, at Planet Money, we kept talking about how it can't actually be so simple, right, as a bunch of renegade pirates and dinghies, and they're just sort of like haphazardly taking over enormous shipping companies and the world's most powerful navies. It's not like, you know, this just happened the other day with the Marisk Alabama and that's it. It's happening all the time recently. And that seemed to us like a sign that there's got to be a financial structure here. We kept wondering how piracy works economically. Right. What is the piracy business model? Because frankly, you know, if it doesn't make economic sense for both the pirates and the shipping industry, it, it would not happen. Like economics drives the world. And if no one was making money... This, this wouldn't work. Exactly. So I called this guy Dr. J. Peter Fahm. He's an analyst of African affairs at James Madison University in Virginia. And I asked Dr. Fahm to walk me through the business model of piracy. So we started with the financiers. And uh, here, David, I get to play my favorite part, a wealthy businessman. You know, I, I'm a businessman and I have a lot of money and I want to get into piracy. It seems like it's you know, a good way to make money. How do I start? Uh, you put up an amount of money, uh, usually 150 to a thousand U.S. to a quarter of a million. In a way, you're providing the seed capital for criminals to uh, start up a business, if you will, or they may already be in business and seeking additional financing. So Dr. Fahm says all the financiers that we know about, they're mostly ethnic Somalis who have done really well in business, and now they live outside of Somalia somewhere. 
So I'm the wealthy financier, and I call someone in Somalia to set me up, someone probably that I know, like maybe a, a distant cousin. And then you, then you send your money to your cousin or something? How do you actually, how do you actually get him the money? Here's how. Usually it's passed through Islamic banking systems, the hawalas that uh, we hear a great deal about. Uh, it's like an informal Western Union. Banking system. Some guy, you know, who just sets up shop and you see him and the pile of bills in front of him indicates that this is the business he's in. You deposit the money and your cousin uh, in Somalia withdraws the money from a corresponding banker there minus the commission. These, it's all based on trust and personal relationships. Okay. So then I get the money to my cousin in our theoretical example right. here. And then my cousin goes about setting up a business for me. So what do we need to buy? Uh, well, you'll need, uh, you'll need some speedboats. You need some crew. You'll need some weapons, uh, generally AK-47s and uh, rocket-propelled grenades, RPGs. Rental of or perhaps outright purchase of a large ship uh, which will launch these speedboats. So that's the, the basic equipment. You also need some intelligence because you can't troll the Indian Ocean a million square miles looking for merchant vessels. So you'll need to uh, – your cousin who's setting up this enterprise will need to develop contacts in various ports and food for the voyage and – And ropes you know, and the, ladders. And all that, yes. The caterer to the – Did you just say caterer? Yes. Uh, think of it as everything you would need to go into the cr cruise ship business. Everything that you would need to run a cruise ship line – you know, short of the entertainment, uh, you need to run a piracy operation. So it's a major logistical undertaking that, you know, if you think it's not just the dozen or so pirates that storm on board, behind those dozen or so pirates are literally dozens, if not hundreds of people uh, working the back office, so to speak. How much does all of that run me? Just just getting set up, the startup costs. That's where we estimate it's running you probably 150 to quarter to 250,000 US. So a quarter million dollars to set up my yes. my piracy business. Yes. Now, Dr. Fum says all those supplies that he talked about, you know, I can mostly get all of that stuff in Somalia, so that's great for me, and then I just need to hire my crew. And Somalia being a country where there's lots of unemployment and poverty, you know, there's a ready workforce for me. Yeah, but Hannah, this is the thing, this is one of the things that really amazes me. It, you know, it's really Sometimes really hard to start a basic business in the developing world. You, you know, there's a lack of education, lack of skilled labor. Like, I'm sort of amazed that pirates are able to pull all this off. Yeah, and I mean, not anyone can be a pirate. It's not that easy to board a ship from low down on the water. And, you know, not anyone, we maybe think everyone can, but not everyone can use guns. So my cousin in Somalia, who I'm financing, he, you know, he can get talent and cheap probably, but he will need to do some training. Uh, okay. So you got your money. You set up some sort of pirate training school for enterprising criminals. Yeah. And now my cousin just needs to choose a ship and then send his crew out to capture it. And, and this is actually important because you can't just choose any ship. Does it have any value? Who is the crew? Uh, do they have any security on board? Uh, who owns the ship? All those things have to be factored. This is a business decision to seize a ship. Right. So you're factoring in, you know, how much is it worth to me to send somebody out to capture the ship if there's not going to be anything valuable on it? Right. Or, or if it uh, belongs to some bank, near bankrupt company that doesn't have the money to pay you. Uh, Westerners command a lot more money than poor Filipinos who 
country and families don't have the money to ransom them. So who's on board? What kind of hostages are you going to get? Americans and Europeans are uh, Americans have not yet been taken hostage except for Captain Richard Phillips, the commander of the Marisk, Alabama, who was held for five days by uh, Somali pirates. I think it, it probably was a serious miscalculation on the part of the pirates in the sense that uh, when they worked their model, they, they miscalculated insofar as the response the U.S. would deliver. Models, really, like financial models? Yes, because you're going to look, a, a European is going to fetch you a lot more than a Filipino. Uh, no one is going to ransom an African. I mean, I, I'm, I'm being brutally frank, but it's true. There are over 200 third world hostages who have been held for months in Somalia who have not, no one has bothered to pay any ransom for. Yeah, Hannah, right. So, okay, it's a business. I mean, let's not forget these people are thugs and, and criminals. Right, right. And that's, you know, some pretty crude business decisions. And Dr. Fum says they take all those decisions and they take all that into account when they're looking at which ship they want to choose, that it's carrying the right kind of cargo and the right kind of people and flying the right flag. And then they go and capture it. Um, So here, David, I just want to switch to the other perspective for a little bit here, the other side of the piracy business, the ship owners. Right. So these are the people who own the ships that are being captured. Or I guess if you're thinking about it uh, from a business perspective, these are the these are the unwilling customers. (laughs) Right. Okay. so one of them, his name is Per Gullestrup. He's the CEO of a Danish shipping company called Clipper Group. And last November, Gullestrup had this ship that was sailing from Romania to Indonesia carrying steel plates and a 13-man crew. And Gullestrup is at his Danish headquarters Friday late afternoon, and he hears an emergency signal from that ship. So they call the boat, and they can't get through. And then he rushes over to this computer screen that they have in the office headquarters with a map, and it has little graphics of all their ships on it. And we could actually see on the screen... The speed of the vessel is, is starting to vary, and also the ship was starting to, uh, to uh, sail in circles. The minute you start maneuvering uh, the ship, either you know, taking turns one way or the other, you're actually kicking up a, a wake that makes it more difficult to come on board the ship. When she starts circling, we know she's under ta- attack, and then at some point, the ship came to a halt. She stopped. We had a ship under a Bahamian flag with a uh, Russian crew, uh, owned by a Danish company, uh, so who do you call? This is the thing that's crazy to me about shipping. Like, you know, Gullstrap had a crew. His crew was Russian, Estonian, and they had one Georgian on board. And then his company is Danish, and the ship is registered in the Bahamas. So The Bahamas? Theoretically, yeah, the Bahamas. So theoretically, the Bahamian government is the first responder. Right, and the Bahamas, we should point out, not known for its navy, Probably not set up to deal well with armed pirates taking hostages. Exactly. So shipping companies like Gullestrups, they buy insurance too. And there's there's actually a special insurance plan for piracy. And when Gullestrups' ship was hijacked, he called his insurer. And the insurer calls a professional negotiator to help him ransom his ship and his crew. A professional negotiator? Isn't it? Aren't you supposed to at least say, look, we don't negotiate with criminals. We're not going to negotiate with you? Well, here's what Gullestrup has to say about that. It never ended our thoughts that we would not have to pay a ransom of some sort. And why not? If you don't pay a ransom, there's nobody there to help you. In other words, you, you, uh, uh, we cannot as a company call on anybody to come in and rescue our members. Our ship is Bahama flag, and the, Bah- the Bahamian, Bahamas does not have a navy uh, or a an, an, uh, military force. 
that would be able to go in and do a rescue operation like we have seen the Americans do and the French do. Um, so in, 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 in our world, not paying was not an option. Because you have a really expensive ship and they have a, a dozen of your crew who have families who are going to start talking to media and going to start showing up at your headquarters and uh, it's going to be sort of a public relations nightmare so if you don't pay, yeah. right? Yeah, that's exactly right. But the pirates keep hijacking ships because ship owners keep paying ransoms. Exactly, exactly. So we are in a vicious circle here. Hannah, so as a as a businessman, he he's totally cornered. This just becomes the the cost of doing business for him. Right, that's how he sees things. He see, feels like he has no other options. So he hires the negotiator, and of course they can't get through to the ship. So then they wait for the pirates to call, which after three days they finally do. They introduced himself and said that they held the crew and the vessel captive, and that they demanded seven million dollars to release the ship. I mean, they're, they're, not, uh, they're not making any threats or anything. They, they, they are very polite in, in, in their, their whole demeanor. So just, hello, my name is whatever, I'm going to be your piracy negotiator? Exactly. That's basically how it went down. Okay, you know, I'm, I'm, my name is Ali. I'm your friendly uh, pirate today. Uh, not quite, but it, you almost got that sense. I mean, it was a very surreal uh, situation where, when it all came about. So this guy, Ali, that he's talking about, um, he's calling on behalf of the pirates. So just like Golestrap hired a professional negotiator, the pirates, they hire one too. So the pirates have on staff their own negotiator? That's his job, just to negotiate? Right. Well, they contract with somebody, and it's usually someone who speaks English and sometimes lawyers or people who have spent a significant amount of time abroad. In this case, the guy who calls himself Ali, the pirates translator, he had spent 29 years in the U.S., and then Ali, he gets a commission out of the ransom. Oh, so so he's incentivized, as the economist would say. To, he's in, he has a strong incentive to drive up the ransom price. Exactly. And Gulistrup is under pressure internationally with his shipping buddies not to pay too much because then all the other ship owners who have their ships hijacked in the future will have to pay higher ransoms too. Right. So if one person starts paying more, then the pirates say, no, no, the going rate is this and you're going to have to pay that. Right. So Ali and Gulistrap, they have to face off about that. And Ali says to him, give us $7 million. And Gulistrap laughs and says, you know, that's a fantasy number. And he says he didn't even consider it. Never. Never. Uh, because that was way, way, way above the market and way, way above what we knew was being paid for other ships and other incidents. Uh, and, and for us to pay anything close to that number, it was just, uh, it never ended our, our minds. When you say it was way above the market, above the market for hostage payments. Exactly, for similar hijackings. So they were starting high. They were starting high. And, and, uh, and then we start low, and we, we gave them, a, as I recall, a, a counteroff of $300,000. And then, of course, the whole hackling starts, and they say, no, 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 this is all too low. And we say, yeah, but your number is way too high. And, and, and then we just went through uh, what basically is a normal negotiation uh, situation. It just sounds it sounds like you're buying a car or something. Well, unfortunately that that it is that's not far from the truth. It, it it is it is strictly a commercial consideration because one have to remember that these uh, pirates are not uh, ideologically motivated. This is pure and simple business. No crew member has ever been killed on purpose uh, by pirates. So uh, knowing that it, it, 
it became a commercial transaction. The minute they kill a crew member, the whole dynamics is changed and the business plan is out the window. So you're locked in this back and forth. They've started high, you've started low. Yes, are, yes. are they budging? Uh, uh, yes, they, they came down relatively quickly. Within a week or so, they came down from 7 to $5 million. Uh, and, but the $5 million is also a fantasy figure. Uh, we came up a little bit, as I recall it, to 400000 And uh, we went back and forth for, if I recall, one or two weeks, uh, just restating our position. And they restated their position. And then we decided to say to them, uh, okay, then there's nothing else to talk about, and we won't call you anymore. And you can call us when you are ready to reduce your demands. So you walked away. We, yeah, you can say that. We, 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 we shut them out. It's like you're on that sales lot buying your car, and you're thinking, okay, I need to walk away for them to exactly, bring it down. Exactly, exactly. And then you're waiting for the salesman to, sales, salesman to call you and give you a better offer. So, wow, that's an awful situation for them to be in. They have 13 hostages. I, ho- I hope they called, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it took three weeks, but Golestrup says he did get a call, and it came in on his personal cell phone. So this had all been going through their professional negotiator. Um, but then the pirates negotiator, they think, was getting pressure to make progress, and he wanted to be able to say that you know he had a direct line to the boss. So 9 o'clock Friday evening, Golestrup's having tea with his wife, and his cell phone rings with a Somali number, and he decides to pick it up. Well, I took the call, and I, I said, uh, of course, the negotiator, he introduced himself, and, and uh, we, we were very courteous. And uh, then I went on to say to him that, um, that I didn't understand why he was calling, because we had stated our position very clearly. And um, I, I really didn't want to spend time on this unless his, uh, he called me to try and bring this to a conclusion. And when I said bring it to a conclusion, that was to bring it down, to bring it to a number that was in line with the market conditions at the time. You were showing you're being a tough negotiator. Yeah, you had to because, I mean, uh, they, they, they really try and get the last dollar out of you. I mean, they, they have to say they're tough negotiators. That, that, that call that, that evening, it, it ended rather abruptly because his phone credit ran out. So uh, he Really? Used, oh, yes. His, 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 credit, his phone credit ran out. And uh, just before we were cut off, he said to me uh, he apologized because he could see his credit was running out and he would have to uh, call me back the next day. So he would call me back on a Saturday. Yeah, kind of reminds you who you're dealing with on the other end there. Every time it sounds like it's sort of normal business negotiation, then you got to remember, oh, yeah, this guy's calling from his cell phone <laughs> with a calling card off the coast on a hijacked ship. Yeah, I, I, it's amazing. So... Ali, he went back and filled up his calling card, and then Golostrup and he went back and forth um, for another couple weeks until one evening, midnight Copenhagen time, they came to an agreement. How much did they settle for? Well, Golostrup wouldn't tell us exactly how much. He said it was somewhere between $1 and $2 million, and he didn't want to say an exact figure because he said he was worried that that would influence current pirate negotiations that were going on right now. Um, but, you know, so they agreed somewhere $1 to $2 million, and Golestrup would drop the money by parachute from the air and that the pirates would return the crew safe and the ship would be full of fuel when they did that. Well, it, is, it is really like, uh, like uh, you know, when you rent a car, right? Make sure the tank's full when you bring it back. Exactly. And then what happened? Oh, well, they just faxed over the details, David. They, fa- they faxed them over? <laughs> yeah, they sent a fax to the ship with the business agreement. 
Um, you know, and then they just go to the bank with duffel bags and they get one to two million dollars in U.S. cash. They put it in this watertight container and fly over the ship and drop it in the water. They, they had a little, a little boat and they, they went over, picked up the parachute and, and you know, the container, brought them aboard the ship, opened the container, and then they started uh, discussing or arguing over the split of the money. And unfortunately, no, normally this, this process should take a few hours and then the ship would be free to go. In our case, there was a major disagreement between the pirates on the division of the loot, and it actually took them 30 hours before they had an agreement between themselves. They fought over the cash, yes, I mean, literally. So you're watching, you're, you and your crew are watching the pirates all fight over the money for 30 hours. Yeah, there's nothing we can do. Uh, it's just an agonizing wait, uh, and, and all we can do is just sit and watch. Are they actually counting the cash to make sure that it's all there? I'm not sure. I believe they're doing some counting because, of course, the cash is coming neatly packed in bundles of so many thousand dollars and what have you. Um, but I'm not sure exactly how they do it. We, we did deliver an electrical, uh, electrical counter with the cash to, to try and facilitate the counting of the money. But whether they used it or not, we don't know. You dropped them a counter in the parachute, too? Yes. Just complimentary? Complimentary, yes. <laughs> to try and facilitate the, uh, the release process. How many how many pirates are we talking about? Well, on payday, typically all the pirates that have been involved during the hijacking, they all come on board the vessel. And we believe, but it's, but it's very hard to get an exact figure, but we believe there were at least 30 pirates that board, on board the vessel uh, when, when it came to uh, payday. Our understanding is that the pirates that actually do the hijacking of the ship, they are the one that gets the highest payment. And then the people who are just coming on to guard the boat after it's been captured, they get paid a little bit less. They get, they get paid less. And we actually found timesheets on board the ship after they had left the ship where we could see that, 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 that there was a timesheet uh, on particular persons who had been on board on date where, where they showed days they had been on board and so many dollars per day and then uh, a total sum on, on, on this little timesheet. So, so they were clocking in and out? Basically, as far as we could see. So, so this is where our pirate operation becomes cash positive. For the pirates, obviously, for you, the financier, Hannah, and for your cousin, the leader who's sort of on the ground there. Right. This is when all the money gets divided up. And, you know, Glowstrap says they actually have reason to believe that just the ship's chandler, the guy who was bringing all the food and the other services to the boat and for the pirates and the hostages, he was paid two hundred dollars to $250,000 just for his work. Um, and Dr. Pham, who we heard from earlier, he actually talked about the division of cash really clearly, you know, from what we know from this incident and other hijackings about the distribution of profits. You know, there's the 30 percent cut that goes back to the original person who financed this whole operation. There's 20 percent that needs to go to that's allocated to various corrupt government officials who've turned the other way uh, and facilitated this in one way or another. And then there's the 50% out of which you're going to have to pay everyone that you've hired to work on this venture. Do we, do well, we have a sense of how much you would make? Like if I'm, if uh, I'm it, one of the people who are taking a, a larger risk? If you're, for example, if you're, if you're leading the attack on the boat, uh, it could be ten to 20000 If you're you know, the teenager with the AK-47 who stands watch between midnight and sunrise, you're probably only going to get 1000 out of the operation. The average Somali family lives on roughly $500 a year. 
So in a couple months, I've just made twice as much as the average family makes in a year. Yes. Or, and if you take a risk and you're actually sailing out to sea uh, as an actual pirate taking a boat, you could be, you know, you could be, you could retire or take it easy for the next 10 years. So that sounds like a pretty good deal for me, the investor. Uh, the, re- the returns will do you a lot better than uh, your average returns on Wall Street this year. You've invested, say, 150 to 250000 and you're getting back somewhere in the neighborhood of, of three hundred to 500000 uh, and you've only invested your money for possibly not even up, for, up to a, a year. Uh, there are very few investments that uh, in today's market are going to give you that return. Wow. Hey, Hannah, so here, here economically is just how I, I've started to think about this. It, it's sort of like a monopoly situation, right? Because the ship owner really wants to get the crew back safely and wants to get the boat back safely. But the pirates have a, have a monopoly. They are the o- they're the only ones who hijack the ship. It's not like you can go to some other pirate and say, you know, give me a better deal. So, you know, you'd think in this situation the pirates could really charge much more, right? They could just ask for whatever. And I think the reason they don't is the same reason that major oil producing countries of the world don't just jack up their prices to $500 a barrel because at some point the customer really does walk away. Or, you know, in this case, if they started to do that, ask for loads and loads of money, uh, you know, it would make economic sense to start arming the boats or having helicopters fly over for security. And that's just no good for the pirates. It puts them out of business. So they have to stay in this li- this middle ground, right, where they try not to hurt anybody. They don't ask for too much money. If they can stay there, then the, the business continues to work for them. Right. But it, but it should be said that the pirates, I mean, I should say this, when we hear directly from pirates, which is not often, but sometimes they do grant interviews, they don't generally describe themselves as in it for the money only. They, they describe this story where, you know, ever since the Somali government fell in 91, foreign ships have been coming through and dumping nuclear waste in their waters and illegally fishing. Um, and there's actually a lot of evidence that this is indeed happening. And the pirates, they talk about themselves as a sort of volunteer coast guard, that they're out there protecting their waters and that the ransoms that they get are sort of like a tax on ships for going through. Yeah, but they're taking hostages. Yeah, that's where it sort of falls apart. Yeah, yeah. Everyone's got a PR department. Hey, so what what happened to the Danish ship? Were they all okay? Yeah, they were all okay. The hostages got home safe. You know, it was all over. There was actually this one little detail. Can I just play you one more piece of tape? I thought this was amazing. Sure, go ahead. And then what happens? You just, you know, they say, okay, we got the money, and you say goodbye and sail away? No, some of them some of them uh, wanted to, to go up the coast because they were very worried about going ashore in ale for fear, we believe, for fear of maybe being robbed by other pirates ashore. So they wanted to be taken by our ship up the coast uh, and then put ashore closer to their home. They wanted a ride. They wanted a ride, pure and simple. So they say, okay, we got the money. Thanks very much. Now we just need you to drop us off at home. That's it. That's it. Fortunately, we were going that way anyway. Wow. Well, thanks, Hannah. There's more on our blog about the Pirates of Old and how they had workers' comp plans, five pieces of silver if you lost an arm, ten pieces for a leg. We also have posts on shipping, on banks, on country music, and pitchforks. It's all at our blog, npr.org slash money. I'm Hannah Jaffe-Walt. And I'm David Kestenbaum. Thank you for listening. <laughs>